In case you were wondering, uh, we will return to our verse-by-verse study of Romans the week after Easter Sunday. And uh, today is not going to be, as Thomas said a couple weeks ago, a spiritual beatdown. I'm not going to... I know you guys enjoy that, and and I, I enjoy giving it to you, but... It's not, it's not going to be that today. It's going to be a little different. Um, today, what I want to do is simply talk to you about a very significant event, and Terry's already alluded to it, uh, that occurred in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ just less than a week before he was murdered. You know, I, that song we sing, God's Murdered Son, I, I don't, normally you don't hear it expressed that way, but that, that is what happened. He was murdered. Uh, This is an event, this event I want to talk about, that happened on a Sunday and and is recorded for us in all four of the Gospels, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the event that I am speaking about is most commonly referred to as the triumphal entry, the triumphal entry. In fact, if if you have a Bible, it's probably, because we're going to be in Mark chapter 11, probably the heading of that chapter in your Bibles, it probably says triumphal entry. And that's the title that has been given, basically, to Jesus' unique entry into the city of Jerusalem only a a few days prior to his crucifixion. And, uh, beloved, I would add that Jerusalem is not just any city. It's not just any city. Psalm 48, verse 2, chapter 48, verse 2, and and Matthew, chapter 5, verse 35, both refer to Jerusalem as the city of the great king. The city of the great king. Listen, in the coming kingdom of God, that Thomas was talking about this morning as he was reading from the Gospel of Luke, in the coming kingdom of God, or the great millennial kingdom that will come to this earth, Jerusalem is the city from which Jesus Christ will rule and reign in righteousness over the entire planet as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jerusalem is very significant. Now, churches choose to annually, uh, annually or yearly commemorate the triumphal entry in one way or another on the Sunday before Easter, or as the day has come to be known, Palm Sunday, Palm Sunday, which happens to be today, this Sunday. Now, if you don't know uh, why, why the day chosen to commemorate this event is called Palm Sunday, you will before we're done. Probably a lot of you do. But it is even more important to understand the significance of the event that Palm Sunday is intended to commemorate. And maybe you hardly understand that as well, but... Even if you do, it is always good for us to review and be reminded again and again of the glorious truths that we find in God's Word. Amen? Amen. Mark chapter 11. If you're not there, please open your Bibles to that chapter. If you're using one of those blue church Bibles, it's page 847. That'll bring you to our text this morning. I'm going to read the first 10 verses, and then we'll just dive on in. Beginning in Mark 11, verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethagy and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, 
And immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, a colt, a young donkey, basically, on which no one has ever set. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to him, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! That's our text. This morning what I want to do is simply consider the uh, three details, three details with you concerning the special event which we just read about, that Palm Sunday commemorates, okay? That simple. That's what we're going to do. You ready? Mm-hmm. So you ready to do that with me this morning? Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Hey guys, it's tough up here sometimes. Come on. Help me out. Um, the prophecy, that's the first uh, detail. You can take notes if you'd like. The prophecy, specifically concerning Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, or remember, the city of the great king. Don't miss that. That's why I said it uh, as we begin this study together. It is the city of the great king. And we're going to look at a specific prophecy. Beloved, what appears on the surface at least in Mark's gospel, which is the account we just read, to possibly be an irrelevant or unimportant detail about Jesus' interest in securing a cult that he then used to ride into Jerusalem on is in reality a very important detail. A detail that might be overlooked if one had no familiarity with the Old Testament scriptures. In fact, if you only had Mark's account of this event and no knowledge of the prophecies contained in the Old Testament, then it might be possible for for someone maybe to conclude that Jesus' request for and ride on a colt was maybe because he was tired and needed some form of transportation to get him the rest of the way into the city. But beloved, that is not the case at all. And again, I know I might be telling you what you already know, but it's good to hear this again. Or maybe you have no idea what I'm talking about, and that's good too, because you're going to find out here in a second. Let's take a look now at Matthew's account. Remember I said this event's recorded in all four Gospels. And I'll just point out to you, not every event of Jesus' life is recorded in all four Gospels, but there's probably about 11 or so events. And, and, And when that event or an event is recorded in all four, it should tell you something. It's significant. It's important. Very important. Matthew 21, Matthew 21, the first book of the New Testament, the first gospel, Matthew 21, verses 1 through 5. Let's read the account there. It says this, Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethagy, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Now, here it is. This is what we didn't see in Mark. Verse 4, 
this took place, the securing of this cult, the command, the instruction to go get the cult and for the cult to come and be brought to Jesus, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, verse 5, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. All right. Now I want to do just a, I want to take a quick excursion with you right here, a little rabbit trail. Is that okay? In other words, I'm going to move away from the message just for a second to address something that comes up because of this account in Matthew, and that is the two donkey controversy. Beloved, have you ever heard this? There's just a ton of contradictions in the Bible. You can't trust that thing. It contradicts itself all over the place. Have you heard that? Okay, I've heard that too. When I was new in the faith, that actually concerned me. And I became worried. Like, really? I didn't know about all these. I mean, they're acting like that's not true. I mean, they keep telling me the Bible's true. If it's filled with contradictions, then how can I trust it? And so I began to research some of these things and found out that these issues, supposed issues of the scriptures are not issues at all. This is one of those places where people who are skeptics or who attack the word of God or who tell you you can't trust it, this is one of the areas they'll go. In Matthew's account, he records uh, basically two donkeys. You saw it here. Jesus says, you're going to find a donkey tied and a colt with her, a young donkey, a young donkey. Mark, Luke, and John don't mention the other donkey. Okay? That's the issue. So they're like, wait a minute. There's a contradiction here. Beloved, listen. This is so simple. There's no contradiction here. We have four Gospels, okay? Those four Gospels are written for different purposes, written to different audiences. Those four Gospels contain details concerning the life of Jesus Christ, his birth, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. They, they record all of these things, his, his, three, his ministry on earth and, and all these things. But when we take them all into account, they all provide us various details concerning what took place. When we put them all together, we get a more fuller picture of what actually occurred in the life of Jesus Christ, okay? One story may not include every detail, and another story might include details that the other one didn't, but that doesn't mean there's a contradiction. So I'm just going to read something to you that is very, just a very simple response to the two-donkey controversy. I, I, this is why I want to tell you this, beloved, because especially you young folks, you'll go off to uh, college, right? And, you know, mom and dad taught you, you know, Christianity, and you may have professed faith in Christ, and then you get to uh, a secular college, and they'll start telling you things, your professors will start telling you things like, you can't trust that Bible. It's just the word of man. It's got all kinds of problems in it. Or the friends there will start telling you that nonsense. Let me just tell you right now, that is absolutely not true. It is absolutely not true. If you look at every single one of these situations that they bring up as like, 
This is, this is it right here. This undoes your Christianity. If you really look at it, there is a reasonable and good explanation for, for the varying accounts or details. They do not contradict. They give us a better understanding of what occurred. So one writer says this. Here's the response to the two-donkey controversy. It's not controversy at all. People make it a controversy who want to attack the word of God and attack Jesus Christ. Hold on, drop that for just a second. Listen, why do you think people attack the word of God, beloved? What is the real reason? See, they claim it's, it's, well, I have an intellectual superiority that you don't have. You just don't know the truth about God's word. That's not the real reason, my friends. The real reason is sin and rebellion. That's the real reason because it just happens to be this book that talks about the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who commands men and women all over the world to repent and bow their knee to him, right? But in rebellion and in sin, the world does not want to do that. So what do they want to do? What's the strategy? Attack the very book that proclaims him. Because if they can undermine this, then they undermine Christ. And they think by doing so, they don't have to surrender their life to him. Well, (laughs) they're in for a surprise. Beloved, the word of God is absolutely true. Okay? It's absolutely true. Don't buy the lie of the world. So here's one... um, response to this two-donkey controversy. It's just ridiculous to even say it, but I have to say it because you'll hear it if you're out there. This is what the writer says. Notice that Mark, Luke, and John did not say that only one donkey was obtained for Jesus or that only one donkey traveled up to Jerusalem with Jesus. The writer simply mentioned one donkey, the colt. They never denied that another donkey the mother of the cult, was present. The fact that Mark, Luke, and John mentioned one young, young, young donkey does not mean there were not two. And then he gives an example. If you had two friends named Joe and Bob who came to your house on Thursday night, but the next day while at work you mentioned to a fellow employee that Joe was at your house Thursday night and you excluded Bob from the conversation for whatever reason, would you be lying? No, of course not. You simply stated the fact that Joe was at your house. And so with Mark, Luke, and John, listen, the emphasis is on this cult because the cult is the fulfillment of the prophecy. Matthew happens to include that, yes, there was another donkey as well, right? And we believe it would be, it was a, so you have a cult who's a young donkey and then you have this other donkey and they're together. I would think it's the mother, it's a mare, it's the mother of the donkey, and it would make sense that Jesus would say, hey, bring them both along, because he's going to ride on the one, the young one, and there's going to be a lot of crowds, and that donkey's going to need some, um, uh, to be settled, and having his mother with him would settle him. It's a non-issue. It is an absolute non-issue. So the fact that the other gospel, so if, if the gospel writers would have said this, so Jesus told his, his men to go get only one donkey, only one, and they brought back only one donkey, then Matthew's account would be a contradiction. But they did not say that, did they? And with all of these things, there's books written, volumes of books written on these, maybe what people call contradictions, supposed contradictions 
There are books written to explain each one. The issue is that people come to it and they, the, the skeptics, those who are anti-God, they come to the word of God and they've already made up their mind about it. Okay? So they're looking. Aha! Here's another contradiction. And here I am. I've already made up my mind about the word of God. So when I come to it and I see something that's strange, I don't go, aha! Here's a contradiction. I go, I need more understanding. And then I get the understanding and I go, there's no contradiction at all. Yeah, right. That might have been the best part of the sermon, guys. I just hope you enjoyed that. <laughs> it's significant, Mike. It's significant. The Word of God is under attack, beloved. Don't let it come under attack in your own mind and heart. Because then we have no Christianity. Now back to the significance of Jesus riding in on a young donkey into Jerusalem. We just saw it in Matthew, right? He said all this occurred to fulfill something, fulfill a prophecy, something that was said. And now look at, let's look at John's account, another gospel writer. John chapter 12, he says it, puts it this way in verses 14 and 15. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. He sat on it just as it is written. Whenever you see that. Typically, it's a reference back to the Old Testament scriptures that were written. He did this just as it was written, and then they quote uh, what was written. Verse 15, fear not, daughter of Zion, daughter of Zion. Just a note, that's really a a title of endearment, a title of endearment that God used to refer to his chosen nation, Israel, and the Jewish inhabitants of Jerusalem, daughter of Zion, okay? Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. There it is again. Now what Matthew and John both referenced in their accounts and reported as being fulfilled by Jesus as he rode into Jerusalem on a young donkey, on a colt, was a section of prophetic scripture written by the prophet Zechariah approximately 500 years prior to the event that we just read about in Mark chapter 11. Here is a specific prophecy from Zechariah that both Matthew and John refer to and was literally fulfilled by Jesus Christ. It's found in chapter 9, verse 9. Here's the text. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The Messiah, beloved God, had promised to his chosen nation Israel, their king, who would one day set up his kingdom on earth and rule and reign over the world from the great city of Jerusalem, the city of the king, would come to his people. And how would he come? Specifically, humble and mounted on a young donkey. So what Mark and the other gospel writers all record concerning the cult is not some useless detail about Jesus' mode of transportation, but instead the literal fulfillment 
of a 500-year-old prophecy that identifies Jesus as the anointed king that had been promised by God and anticipated and longed for by the nation of Israel for centuries. That's the first point, okay? So the first detail of the triumphal entry we just looked at was the prophecy. The second is the path. The second is the path, specifically the path that Jesus took into Jerusalem. Now listen, we have a custom that we sometimes use to recognize in our own culture to honor dignitaries or people considered to be important, one that you are no doubt familiar with, and that is the practice of rolling out a red carpet for someone to walk on. Are you, do you know what I'm talking about, rolling out a red carpet? This is done for presidents or dignitaries from other countries. It's done for actors, which doesn't really make sense, but at least in my mind, <laughs> they're just actors, come on. But I'm not sure where this practice originated, but I read somewhere that a, a, great, a, great, a great ancient ruler of an empire once paid a visit to his brother-in-law on New Year's Day, and so to celebrate the event, his brother-in-law carpeted the road between his house and the palace with gold fabric and rich red velvets so that the royal staff would not have to touch the ground. I don't know, maybe, maybe that's where this custom came from. Well, approximately 2,000 years ago, the Jewish people in Jerusalem, in a sense, rolled out the red carpet, but it wasn't red carpet, and it wasn't uh, for a president or an actor, but for a person named Jesus. Look back at the text, Mark chapter 11, verses 7 and 8. Picking up there, the writer says, "...and they brought the colt to Jesus." And threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it, and many spread their cloaks on the road, on the road. So we learn here that Jesus mounts the colt after his disciples threw their cloaks. Cloaks, their cloaks would be their outer garments, their outer garments. They wore an inner garment and an outer garment. So this is just a removal of the outer garment. They put these outer garments, these cloaks, on the young donkey, and they did this, no doubt, the text doesn't tell us why, but I would assume they did it to give Jesus a type of saddle, a type of saddle on the donkey. So there's nothing really strange about that in and of itself, but then Mark tells us that many were laying their outer garments on the road, on the road. The Gospel of Luke records it this way, and as he, Jesus, rode along, they, the crowd, spread their cloaks on the road, their outer garments. One writer just says it, commenting on this, says this, they unwrapped their loose cloaks from their shoulders and stretched them along the rough path to form a momentary carpet as he approached, as Jesus approached the city of the great king, Jerusalem. Now, that might seem strange to us, uh, to us but this, this idea of, you know, like removing our jackets and and throwing them down for someone to, to walk over is a, is a little strange. Um, but it was a practice, it was an ancient practice reserved for those who occupied the highest positions of power. Okay? We have a biblical example of this in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13, when Jehu discovered that God had chosen him to be 
uh, a, the king of Israel, one of the many kings of Israel. This is what is recorded in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him, that is Jehu, on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Okay, so there's an example of it in the scriptures. So this red carpet treatment, if you will, that Jesus received as he entered the city of Jerusalem was quite significant, for it further affirmed the reality of the prophecy of Zechariah. Israel's king had arrived and was making his way into the city of the great king. Now look back again at Mark chapter 11, verse 8. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. Cut from the fields. One uh, Christian writer comments concerning this text, he says this, To this carpet of clothing they added the further tribute of covering his path with branches of trees. In John's record, the Gospel of John, identified as palm branches. Palm branches. You'll see that in John 12, 13. And that was a common demonstration in the East, that practice, putting out these palm branches, to welcome a king, a conqueror, or a deliverer. Okay? So now do you understand why they call it Palm Sunday? That's why. Uh, sometimes it gets, it's, you know, we don't have, I think people have, don't, have no idea because they just see like churches waving palm branches and stuff or kind of they got palm branches displayed, but they may not understand the connection of all of that. But that, that's why the reference is there. It was a tribute to the king. So we looked at that, pro, or that we looked at the prophecy, we looked at the path. Now we'll consider one more detail. That's the praise. That's the praise, the praise Jesus received as he made his way into Jerusalem. Look back at the text, Mark chapter 11, verses 9 through 10. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, at this point, what I want to do is I want to show you the four other, or three, three other accounts, the other gospels, what they say concerning this praise, and and I'll explain why in a second. So we're just going to look at them quickly, and then I'm going to make some comments. We'll start with Matthew. Again, all four gospels record this event. Let's see what Matthew tells us about this praise. Chapter 21, verse 9. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! Okay, then we have Luke's account in chapter 19, verses 37 and 38. It says there, As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples begin to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. 
Okay, one more. The last gospel, John. John chapter 12, verse 13, records this. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. So these are folks that are, they see him coming. They leave the city. He's making his way there, and they're crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Okay. Do you get the the idea of what's going on here? Without me even saying anything about or trying to comment on the text, just reading to you the accounts. Do you can you kind of feel the picture, the weight, the heaviness, the seriousness of this event? Well, it's, it's uh, quite ridiculous, but some skeptics have tried to downplay the significance of the praise that Jesus received. And I'm not going to explain to you how they do that entirely, because basically they try to dismantle every, every statement, basically saying they kind of got caught up in this thing, and, and they weren't really talking to Jesus and the idea that he was the king, but they were just excited that the king is coming, and they kind of saw him maybe more as a prophet, but, but certainly not the king, you know, that was promised in the Old Testament. And so, for instance, they'll say that phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that phrase, They'll say this, by the way, this is true, it was a common expression offered to pilgrims or travelers that regularly came to Jerusalem to celebrate the various religious feasts, like the Passover, which, I didn't tell you this, but by the way, that was the event that the Jewish people from all parts of the ancient world had come to Jerusalem for at this very time, okay? They are getting ready to celebrate the Passover. So there's more Jews present in Jerusalem than there ever normally is throughout the year. And so they're like, you know, hey, that's just something they say to folks walking by. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And, and that is true, but they're not giving the real weight and significance of all the other statements that are being said to Jesus while he makes his way into the city of the great king on the donkey, on the young colt. So when you consider everything that was being said, being done, all the praise that was being offered up to Jesus and the red carpet treatment he was receiving, then this praise, beloved, could be, can't be anything less than an acknowledgement or, listen, at the very least, at the very least, a hopeful belief by the crowds that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, the promised heir to David's throne. You know, and you see that phrase, he's called the son of David, because God made a promise to David the king that from his line would come the king, the king. He would have an everlasting and eternal kingdom. He would rule and reign in righteousness. So they're, they're saying, this is the guy, this is the descendant. By the way, Jesus is a descendant of David. So they're saying, this is the son of David. This is the one the great king, the deliverer of Israel, beloved, that the prophets of God had spoken of and said would come. And more specifically, you can't get much more specific than this, that he would come humble and mounted on a young donkey. By the way, his second coming, a lot different. A lot different. He'll come as judge. 
He'll come with a sword in his mouth to execute his judgment upon the rebels of this world. So the bottom line is when you consider all that was said and done, it would absolutely be absurd to think that the intent of all the praise given was just to give a warm and respectful greeting to Jesus. It's outrageous. In fact, on this point, it is helpful to look at the Pharisees' response. Who are the Pharisees? The religious leaders of Israel. It is important to look at their response to the praise Jesus was receiving as he made his entry into Jerusalem and, even more important, Jesus' response to them. Okay? This is recorded in Luke's account of the event. We'll look at it again. We read the first two verses. Luke 19, verses 37 through 40. Here again, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And here you go, verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Now look, beloved, you know what this tells us? The Pharisees understood this to be much more than the typical welcome of a pilgrim making his way to Jerusalem for the Passover. They got it. They understood it. But because of their sinful and stubborn unbelief, because that's what it is, they utterly rejected the praise that was being offered up to Jesus. And so the Pharisees, refusing to believe the truth concerning the one who was entering the city, demanded that Jesus forbid the people to give him this praise. This is inappropriate! (laughs) And what does Jesus say? oh, you know what, you're right. This is really over the top. They're getting all worked up for no good reason. They got me confused with someone else. No, Jesus considered the praise to be absolutely fitting, for he was indeed the Messiah, the great, great anointed king of God, the promised one. Commenting on Jesus' response, one writer said this, Jesus responded that there must, there must be some proclamation that he is the Messiah. If not, even inanimate objects, lifeless stones would be called on to testify for him. All history had pointed toward this single spectacular event when the Messiah publicly presented himself to the nation, and God desired that this fact be acknowledged. That would have been cool if the rocks cried out, beloved. (laughs) And he could have made it happen. God would have made it happen. I I believe that absolutely. If they didn't cry out, if they didn't proclaim the truth of who Jesus was, the very rocks could have cried out. So, beloved, I told you, this really isn't. This is more you understanding the significance of that event because it's kind of just tossed around. Oh, they're celebrating Palm Sunday. 
So what does that mean? Here's the bottom line concerning the significance of Palm Sunday. It, it's simply this. It commemorates the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem and made public his claim to be their Messiah and the King of Israel in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Okay? But listen, as the story unfolds, that's Sunday, right? As the story unfolds before the end of the week, the Jewish people weren't praising him anymore. But instead, they were crying out, Crucify him. Crucify him. In fact, when when Pilate asked, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest or religious rulers of Israel answered this way, We have no king but Caesar. Are you kidding? The pagan ruler of Rome, that's your king? Beloved, listen, the truth is is that the one Israel sent to the cross to be crucified was much more than a, a man from Nazareth, or, or even maybe a, a great prophet, as some may have thought. He was, he was much more than that, but rather as Jesus openly declared to the people on Sunday by riding into Jerusalem, the great city, or the city of the great king, riding in on a young donkey in literal fulfillment of Zechariah 9, verse 9, down a road covered with cloaks and palm branches, a path for royalty and gladly receiving praise fit only for the Messiah. He was without a doubt, he was without a doubt the great king that Israel had been waiting for. And yet, shortly thereafter, Israel not only rejected him, but also had him put to death. And as a nation, as a nation, they still have not repented to this day. They still have not repented. Now, you can write down Zechariah 12.10. Write that down. From that very same book of the Old Testament that prophesied the coming of this king. Zechariah 12.10, it, it predicts, it prophesies a future event where the nation of Israel will look upon him whom they have pierced. And they will mourn. They will mourn. They will repent. They will repent. Beloved, I'm, you know, I'm kind of, I want to tie this back in because, you know, we've been in Romans, right? And we've been in 9, 10, and 11, and that's primarily about the nation of Israel. Beloved, remember what we've been learning in Romans, 
We read this story, and it's, even, it's just hard to fathom, but we read it. But we know that God is not done yet with the nation of Israel. He's not done with them, right? The story is still unfolding. Romans. Open, turn there, Romans. You know, you're in Mark, so it's not that far to the right. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. I'm doing it with you. Romans 11, that's where we've been. Guess what? We'll be there in a couple of Sundays, and, and I'll actually uh, do my best to work through this section of text. But this is what it, Paul says in verse 25, Lest you be wise of chapter 11 in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. It's a future reality, beloved, as it is written, the Deliverer. That's Jesus Christ, the great king, will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. That's a reference to the nation of Israel. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now, beloved, this might be a little hard for you to to understand or get, but that great kingdom of God that Jesus was proclaiming and his disciples were proclaiming that Thomas read about this morning out of Luke, that great kingdom cannot come until the nation that it was promised to receive their king. And that is the kingdom that you and I, as believers in Jesus Christ, have been made citizens of. Our future is tied to the prophetic plan laid out for the nation of Israel, and that includes Israel at some point repenting of rejecting their king and recognizing their sin and calling out to him as their Messiah and Lord. And that day, beloved, is coming. See that? I mean, there's a lot more to it than I just gave you, but there's a big picture, guys. There's a big picture. I'm trying to connect them all together for you. And I'll close with this. I want to close with this to give you something to think about. The events of that week that begin with, think about this, the triumphal entry of Jesus. Wow, there was a celebration going on, right? That was on Sunday. But that week ends with Jesus' death on Friday. That, to me, is a clear picture of the incredibly corrupt nature of humanity or the wickedness of the sinful nature that we are all born with. Don't make a mistake here and go, oh, those are those wicked Israelites. Don't do that. Don't do that. They've got the same corrupt nature that you and I were born with. So listen. If you have come to see the light, huh? Huh? If you were blind, but now you see. Israel was blind, beloved, but if you were blind and now you see, if you have been rescued from the God of this world, Satan, who has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3. If you have repented and trusted Jesus Christ as 
your Lord and Savior, then my dear friend, you have every reason to give unceasing praise. Did you hear that? Unceasing praise and thanks to Almighty God. Why? Because you owe it to the sovereign grace and mercy of God that causes the blind to see, the deaf to hear, and helpless and lost sinners to recognize and embrace by faith the truth concerning who Jesus Christ is is that's what i read when i read that story and i read it all out and i know how it ends i fall to my knees and thank god that he has rescued me from rebellion and sin and darkness because if he hadn't done it beloved and i was born in that age and i was a jew and he hadn't sovereignly worked to pull me out of that mess to open my eyes, then I would have been there with them screaming, crucify him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for your great salvation. Father, we, we, we just want to confess, we want to publicly say, it's not just a matter that we, uh, we just couldn't save ourselves. That's true, we, we couldn't do anything to save ourselves. But Father, the reality, the truth is, uh, even, if, even if that salvation was there, we couldn't even do anything to get it because we were running from it. Rebels, we're born rebels. We're, our, our understanding is darkened. We're alienated from you in our natural sinful state. We are messed up. Bad, bad. Hearts corrupted, deceitful, and wicked. And if it were not for your loving, merciful, saving, drawing, powerful grace and mercy, we'd still be living in that rebellion. We'd still be in that darkness. We'd still be denying the truth about Jesus Christ. We'd be still living as if we were the king instead of living as if Jesus were the king. So, Father, we, we owe everything to you. Everything. We thank you for the salvation that Jesus secured for us. We thank you, we praise you. And we also thank you for your word, God. We thank you for it. Help us to understand there's a big picture going on. You have a plan, it's laid out. You are accomplishing your purposes. And your purposes are to bring glory to yourself. May we rejoice in that, Father. May we rejoice in our salvation as we, as we think about all the events that occurred this final week, as we think about Friday, and as we, as we rejoice and celebrate Sunday, Father. May we never forget, apart from you, we would all be absolutely damned. It is only by your saving hand that we have been made citizens of that great kingdom that it will be coming to this earth one day. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.